Good afternoon to our listeners. My name is Vincenzo Guido, and I am an ILR senior and co-editor-in-chief of the Undergraduate Law and Society Review at Cornell. And my name is Matthew Jacob, also an ILR senior and co-editor-in-chief of the Review. And we are back for another episode of Law and Society Talk, brought to you by the members of the Undergraduate Law and Society Review at Cornell, with the generous space and airtime of CornellRadio.com. In short, our publication seeks to provide an open platform for scholarly writing, critical thinking, and reasoned debate on the myriad of issues in the fields of law and policy. This podcast is meant solely for the purposes of discourse and discussion and should not be construed to be any form of legal advice or counsel. And we will be coming to you on Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time every other week, now remotely and through everyone's new favorite conferencing platform, Zoom. And we thank you for tuning in and look forward to getting underway this afternoon. It's actually the last time that I'll actually be reading that introduction, probably, because <laughs> yes. um, this is our final episode uh, for our season as graduation or some form of graduation. Yeah. He's passing into from senior year to the next stage um, is now occurring. But really, uh, before we dive into today's business and sort of in that theme, I want to welcome aboard, um, uh, actually, who's on this podcast today with us, our brand new editor-in-chief, Jonathan Harris. Um, who will be taking the reins again after Matt and I graduate this semester, uh, or again, just sort of pass on. So it has, uh, it's been a wild ride and we are beyond glad yeah. to see everything that the review has managed to accomplish with, uh, you know, revamped digital presence, print publication, and this podcast. Um, and we're really excited to see uh, what Jonathan and his team of uh, editors have uh, in store for the publication in the future. So uh, before we really start with our standard business for today, uh, Jonathan, would you mind just kind of introducing yourself and maybe telling us a little bit about um, you know, what you're excited about as editor-in-chief? Yeah, of course. Uh, thank you for having me on, uh, Vincenzo and Matt. Uh, my name's Jonathan Harris. I'm going to be in se- a senior in ILR, just like Vincenzo and Matt were this year. <laughs> yeah. uh, I'm from Bethesda, Maryland, and uh, I'm, I'm really excited to take over this role. I've spent the past two years learning under both of you and, and uh, Natalie Moore doing a great job in this role. Uh, and I'm really excited to take over the reins and hopefully continue to put out this great podcast and uh, publish more editions uh, of our work. Uh, I'm looking forward to working with our, our great editorial board, but mostly I'm looking forward to just reading what everyone has to say about the contemporary legal and policy issues. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're super excited to see Matt and I will definitely be listening and hope that this podcast remains in that vision. So, uh, but welcome aboard, Jonathan. We're glad to have you today. So uh, yeah, in sort of keeping theme with this show, I'm basically going to turn this over to Matt to start going off on Trump again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, in all seriousness, we have a, a variety of things, starting with uh, kind of an update on some of the biggest uh, uh, SCOTUS cases, specifically the Trump finance cases, which uh, some of our listeners may recall. We uh, initially, I think, discussed in the first episode of the podcast. Yeah, all the way uh, back. Mazars and, uh, and, uh, and the Vance case. So Matt, I'm actually going to turn this over to you. And then you want to give us a quick update on what's going on? Yeah, sure. So uh, like Vincenzo said, we talked about this in the very first episode back when we thought it was actually going to be heard, I believe like March 30th, I think was when these cases were initially supposed to be heard. And um, it was really interesting to hear it being live streamed. So it was the arguments were extremely long, especially because um, Trump's side was actually represented by uh, DOJ and Trump's personal lawyers against just um, the House and then uh, 
the Manhattan District Attorney on the other side. So it's pretty interesting. DOJ mm -hmm. jumped in on Trump's side on both cases, which I guess is not very surprising, mm -hmm. <laughs> especially because uh, the DOJ, I would say, has been uh, thoroughly politicized. And we'll, we'll be getting to the, the politicization of the DOJ uh, in a little while when we talk about Mike Flynn. But anyway, so uh, you'll recall that the Mazars case had to do with congressional subpoenas to Trump's accounting firms. And uh, well, accounting firm and also he, uh, this case was consolidated with a case uh, uh, against Deutsche Bank and Capital One. Basically, the House of Representatives was seeking a significant amount of financial records, uh, not subpoenaing Trump directly, and that's gonna be important, but they were subpoenaing third parties that had access to these records. So his banks, his accountant, and uh, it was multiple committees doing this. I believe Oversight was one of them. Financial Services was one of them. And then, of course, the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence was one of them. They were all seeking similar records. I'm not sure. They weren't seeking all the same records, but, you know, the same vein uh, business records. So anyway, uh, Mazars was the first case that was argued. And it's the case that a lot of people are talking about because it's the case that's actually probably going to be a much closer margin than the Vance case. We'll get to that. But... Yeah. A lot of it, a lot of the discussion uh, had to do with kind of what the Supreme Court should do when it comes to maybe putting a limit on Congress's subpoena power, especially when it comes to records of the president. So um, there's a standard, like there has to be a legislate, a legitimate legislative purpose for Congress to be able to issue a subpoena, but the, those words shouldn't deceive you. It's an extremely, extremely lenient standard. And, you know, the past Supreme Court president basically says that, you know, really anything, it could be a legitimate legislative purpose. So, I mean, everybody was pretty sure that uh, the, the House is in the right here. So, um, Yes. When it comes to, it's kind of important to note that the, the committees had different objectives when it came to the financial records. So, I mean, everybody believed that the House Permanent Select Committees on Intelligence's subpoenas were probably on its face a little bit more legitimate. Like they were investigating like foreign interference in the election, obviously finances for one of the two candidates and the candidate that was favored by Russia. It makes a lot of sense. I think I think everybody in good faith could really get behind that but like the oversight committee and the financial services committee people are you know a little bit more hesitant about whether there was really a good faith legislative purpose but the thing about the legislative purpose test is that it's so lenient that everybody was pretty sure that um the house was able to do what they wanted to do although i guess it was smart of trump trying to block these subpoenas but you know that case was really interesting because it seemed like the conservative justices were pretty keen on placing limits on uh, congress's ability ability to kind of conduct oversight and uh, subpoena records so they could they, you know they, they, it can go a number of ways so number one the house of representatives could just win the case and all subpoenas are valid and then uh the House of Representatives be able to enforce their subpoenas. But there's also a pretty good chance that at least some of the subpoenas won't be valid. The, uh, the Supreme Court might rule in a pretty close decision that maybe like the House Permanent Select Committee's on intelligence subpoena is valid, but maybe not the oversight and the financial services kind of uh, subpoenas. And maybe it would be like a compromise ruling so they can get like this, the Chief Justice who really cares about the legitimacy of the court on board. Um, 
but and then it's possible, although probably not very likely, that they just strike down all the subpoenas. So I mean, we we'll, we can go into more detail, but that's kind of an overview of the Mazars case. Uh, the Vance case is a little bit more straightforward, and um, the Vance case is the Vance case has to do with a subpoena from uh, Cyrus Vance, who's the Manhattan District Attorney. And he was conducting a criminal investigation and required Trump's records from, I believe it was Mazars um, as well. And Trump tried to sue to stop those records from being turned over, except that, you know, there's actually significant precedent when it comes to, um, you know, civil litigation against the president. Um, which makes it more likely that, you know, criminal litigation against the president, which is even more important, I believe everybody would agree, uh, is actually completely legal and fine. So Jay Sokolow, who, who was Trump's personal attorney representing him in the Vance case, was actually arguing that Trump should receive temporary presidential immunity, that's an exact quote, uh, from any criminal uh, process during his presidency from these uh, state from these state officials. So, I mean, his quote, I don't remember the exact quote, but he was saying like, oh, Trump's in the middle of the pandemic. Like, how is it fair that I have to call him for a couple hours to kind of go over these subpoenas? So, I mean, that was Sokolow's argument. And, um, but everybody's pretty sure that the DA has a much better argument because there's a significant precedent when it comes to litigation against the president. I mean, you had Bill Clinton, for example, who had to sit for a deposition for hours in the White House. And this was just for civil litigation, you know? So you would think that Trump should be able, and that was, that was a direct deposition to Bill Clinton. What Cy Vance here is wanting is just access to his financial records through a third party. So it's much further removed from a deposition of the president of the United States. So uh, everybody's pretty sure that this Cy Vance case will result in uh, Cy Vance actually winning that case, maybe even 9-0. So that's kind of a summary of the financial records cases. So, you know, I just want to start off by kind of asking asking a question about the Mazars case and asking, you know, how do you think it will affect Congress's oversight in the future if, hypothetically, there is a much higher burden to actually be able to, you know, kind of uh, put out these subpoenas? And what would happen mm -hmm. if everybody just sues immediately to try to stop enforcement of the subpoenas? Because it's not very, like, before the Trump administration, I mean, sometimes there was haggling over kind of the breadth of the subpoenas, but they usually were complied with before it ever got into federal court. But now the Trump administration just does not comply with basically any document requests or any subpoenas at all. So what, what do you think will happen to congressional oversight if the Supreme Court decides to kind of rule for Trump here? Yeah, I have some thoughts on this, but I want to actually turn it over to Jonathan first, uh, since first time on the podcast. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think this is a, a real interesting issue that the, the court is considering right now. Um, I know how much they love, and I say that sarcastically, uh, uh, deciding issues between the executive and the legislative <laughs> branches yes. uh, when they feel that they should probably just figure it out between themselves. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was interested in this case because the, the separation of power concerns that uh, the DOJ and that Trump are arguing, I'm not sure if they're present. So I think what the, uh, what the, the congressional committees are subpoenaing here are the financial documents from third parties. So 
Trump's accounting firms, banks he was working with. It's not exactly uh, documents that he himself has to turn over. So I know that the uh, Second Circuit Court of Appeals in December, when they uh, confronted these issues, uh, argued or held that it, this did not trigger separation of power concerns. So I'm really interested to see how the court answers those questions. Yeah, what do you think, Vanessa? Yeah, yeah I, I think I largely agree for the most part. The one hesitation that I have from a much broader perspective with regard to any extensive leniency as it pertains to the uh, Congress's um, subpoenaing power is sort of if you flip you know, the scenario, right? Say that you know you have a Joe Biden White House and you have, I don't know, in the, in the universe in which this would happen, but a Joe Biden White House and a Republican-controlled House, uh-huh. um, could the Republicans then use that subpoena power via very um, sort of broad guidelines to aggressively use it to try to just make the president's ability to govern significantly more challenging by virtue of the fact that they're constantly suing or subpoenaing for maybe trivial records. In this case, and I want to make clear that I'm not equating the two situations here mm-hmm. um, because I think that Trump is clearly trying to hide information that's damaging to him. So I'm that I think is a potential concern. Now with regard to this unique issue though, I think it's important that you both brought up that this is a third party. So I'm interested to see very similar to what Jonathan said, how the court try to, you know, really wrangles with that issue because again, this is not an instance where the president necessarily, at least in terms of technical formalities is not the one that's being directly investigated or, the, or directly sort of, um, you know, subpoenaed here. It's they're subpoenaing a third party. Now, that said, I am still interested to the degree to which, you know, the standard works one way or the other, where at what point does really going after any number of third party, you know, hosts of you know information, in this case, bank records and financial records, to what degree then does that, you know, where does the line get drawn where, even though you're technically going through a third party, you're still really what you're doing is still amounting to an investigation and a subpoena of you know the target, which is presumably President Trump. So I do foresee that being a potentially precarious issue that the courts are not going to want to deal with in the future, um, and is definitely something outside of the realm of politics that I think a judge would be reasonably concerned about. Um, yeah. So you know, another really interesting point that I haven't really raised yet is this idea of um, you know intent and mm-hmm. uh, you know. Yeah kind of trying to understand exactly what Congress was doing. Was there like a pretext, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I'm not sure if we talked about in this podcast, but there was a really big case last term, I believe it was the census. Yeah, it was last term. Uh, No, I'm thinking of two terms ago. I'm thinking of, uh, well, I mean, technically we're talking about both here. So there's, there was the census case that was last term and there was Trump v. Hawaii, which I think was two terms ago now. Yep. Where the Supreme Court kind of took, slightly different views when it comes to kind of, you know, analyzing the intent of the body they're looking at the legal action of. So with Trump v. Hawaii, you'll recall that it was a 5-4 decision that said that, like, the people that were arguing against the travel ban were saying that the obvious intent of this was to kind of ban people because of their religion or their race, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a you know, blatant violation of the Constitution, except that you know, uh, there were documents and other testimony that said otherwise that there was like a legitimate reason. And what the Supreme Court said was that, you know, we really can't evaluate that all that context. We only have to look at the documents here. That's what's important. Right. Mm -hmm. And they said that they really, they, they also didn't want to like analyze all of the 
different statements that Trump made before he took the office. Like, if you'll remember, in December 2015, he said, like, I want a Muslim ban or something like that, which obviously is, you know, blatantly unconstitutional, right? But the Supreme Court said that they wanted to ignore all of that. But, you know, with the census case, the census case was, <laughs> was really interesting because, you know, there was just so much evidence about what the, um, what the Census Bureau and what, and what uh, the Commerce Department were really trying to do with the census. They were really trying to make it so that, um, you know, Republicans would have more representation uh, in, they were, they're basically, they were trying to disenfranchise a lot of people who, uh, would not want to fill out these census forms. And the Supreme Court kind of, Roberts event decided with the liberals in that case and said that it was just so, I, I, it's hard to, it's hard to put it, but that case was one where the, all the documentary evidence basically made Roberts believe that, you know, it was just a completely blatantly unconstitutional thing that the Commerce Department was trying to do. So he said, okay, go back to the drawing board, try to come up with a real reason to, um, to include the citizenship question on the census. And uh, mm -hmm. the Trump administration eventually dropped the question. But how that's relevant here is because you know, Thomas said this in oral arguments on Wednesday or, or on Tuesday. He explicitly said, obviously, you guys are just trying to get Trump, right? It's not real. I mean, he, he, that's what he said. He didn't go on mm -hmm. to say, like, oh, you, you don't have a legislative purpose. But he was basically implying that, you know, Congress really didn't have a legislative purpose. They're just trying to embarrass Trump, right? So mm -hmm. I'm wondering, do you think that the Supreme Court should get involved here and try to, you know, try to ascertain the motives of Congress. I mean, one argument I was hearing was that, you know, Congress is made up, well, the House of Representatives at least is made up of 435 representatives. Mm -hmm. Like, how do you ascertain a motive of, you know, entire House of Representatives as compared to, like, the motive of the president, for example, which, which might be might, much simpler to get to the bottom of. But do you, think, do you think it should be the Supreme Court's job to kind of look at every subpoena and try to figure out whether there is a legitimate legislative purpose or maybe there's an underlying motive that doesn't have a legislative purpose? Should the Supreme Court do that? I think intent is a very hard thing to discern. And I, I cautiously say, probably with a couple of asterisks, no, that they should not be trying to evaluate intent routinely. And uh -huh. it, this is something that Justice Thomas routinely sort of employs in his version of originalism when it comes to you know, deciding cases is, or evaluating sort of the constitutionality of a statute, uh, provision, et cetera, is what's the original intent here? And I think he correctly pointed out that one of the weakest arguments, you know, sort of in support of that kind of approach is that you have to discern, you have to discern a concrete semblance of intent uh, which is much harder, I think, than what people may think for not only the folks that are, you know, in the House, but for the folks that then approve it in the Senate and then the folks that approve it. Uh, and then ultimately the president who signs it. In this case, it's obviously a subpoena, so it's slightly different in that the House is specifically doing it. So there's one chamber. But I think the argument still applies. Um, that actually really contrasts, too, with another, like, wing of similar originalists, textualists, um, like such as uh, probably Gorsuch to a degree, um, although he's probably closer to Thomas than he is to Scalia on a lot of stuff, but certainly Justice Scalia, who castigated uh, use of intent um, in when it comes to sort of discerning purpose. So the short answer to your question, I think, is generally no. I don't think that intent really um, should play. It makes, I think, sense to at least initially say that, well, okay, what was the legislator trying to do here? But as a matter of law, um, when you have a 
tribunal, when you're presenting in front of a tribunal, I think that's very, very difficult to try to discern that. I think that, you know, as so Vin, maybe, Vin, I want to put you on the yeah. spot. Was Trump v. Hawaii uh, correct? Was, did the Supreme Court rule the right way? Do you think? I, I, I honestly, I need to, I need to review the substance of that case uh, more okay. to answer your question definitively. I no. wish I could, but I don't want to say the wrong thing. Got um, it. No, so, that's fine. Yeah. Um, I do think though that I mean it's it's telling that you know Justice um, Thomas, regardless of whether or not you think intent is correct, um, you know he makes a valid point in asking the question. Well, you guys are clearly after. Yeah, no, and I, 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 I'm as a liberal. I mean, yeah, I mean, I, yeah. I'm not. I mean, I think everybody could really kind mm. of say. That, I mean, what they're trying to do is they're trying to they're trying to embarrass the president. But that's their. I mean, they have. Mm that like that that's what everybody thought was actually okay i mean like i said at the beginning legitimate legislative purpose is such a is such a lenient standard mm -hmm. that they could conceivably come up with a legitimate legislative purpose i mean like you could like for the financial services uh, committee to you know one his tax returns they could say they're using that information to try to come up with a law yes. so that like federal candidates need to release their tax returns and i think that's definitely a legitimate legislative yeah. purpose i think certainly even if their main goal is not really right. the law and although I, they would want I, the law they want to embarrass the president yeah. i think and, and at the at the risk of oversimplifying here i, I yeah. think it comes down to really more of a imperfect answer to just a very very difficult way of like actually implementing something so like scalia is like as, as i recall his like primary argument against using intent at least in this form um, is that like not only is it hard to discern but like it, it's really just it, it's a difficult things for judge judges to do and by getting out of the weeds of that by trying to focus on other things first and foremost obviously the plain text of something that's you know whatever the statute of the action is uh, that should be the guiding post and most justices at least as a starting principle agree with that um so i i think really trying to avoid the intent question is more of a we just don't want to get into all the messy thickets even though it makes common sense that one would ask well okay well what is this law trying to accomplish before we move to the jury trial case which i think actually brings up some similar questions about not maybe necessarily intent but just like you know original meaning um versus original intent um, Jonathan, do you have any thoughts sort of on this uh, with regard to the intent question as it pertains to the Mazars case? Uh, yeah, well, I, I did want to say first that I find it interesting that uh, Justice Thomas is now asserting himself in oral arguments. Yes, it's, uh, good point. Uh, every every single phone. day. Every single day. Yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I feel like we've heard, you know, so often now oh, Justice Thomas doesn't speak in oral arguments. He doesn't ask questions. It's been a year. It's been this many years. And now... Yeah. It's like every day Justice Thomas has yes. a question, but it's over the phone. Yeah. Uh, so I'm wondering if, if uh, the court has been hindered at all by the uh, telephone virtual or, or telephone oral arguments. Um, but I did want to say uh, in regard to intent, I, this is why I have uh, this is why I have trouble with um, the court answering these kinds of separation of powers questions or litigating between the two branches because you know, Matt, like you said, I'm sure the Financial Services Committee or the Intelligence or Oversight Committee could come up with a legitimate uh, legislative mm -hmm. purpose that wouldn't yeah. necessarily be hard. But, uh, you know, there's always that question of is there an underlying uh, yeah. motivation that's inherently political? Yeah. And I think, you know, it's probably some mesh of the both. Yeah. Uh, I think in, in one vein, you know, we do probably want uh, real legislative fixes um, so that our our candidates running for 
national office, especially the president, have to be transparent about their financial dealings and you know their dealings with foreign countries and foreign and uh, foreign corporations and their loans and if they're being uh, if they're if they're holding to the letter of the law um, with regard to their business dealings. But um, I, I, I think that the House Democrats do want to bring some political shame to Trump. I don't think that's yeah. a question at all. And yeah. so that's why I, I don't like the court litigating these issues because it, there's not a clear cut answer. And, um, you know, in some sense, there's going to be value judgments made about what is more important than the other. And I'm sure, and we don't like to believe it, but I'm sure that these justices will be considering the the type of shame that will be brought on political parties now and in the future and candidates now in the future by allowing uh, congressional committees to subpoena documents left and right. Yeah, uh, I think that's uh, definitely right. And I think that maybe now we should finally, after going going on about this for a while, we'll turn it over to you, Jonathan, to talk a little bit about Ramos v. Louisiana and unanimous jury trials. Yeah, sure. So the court uh, on April 20th of this year, just a, a handful of weeks ago, released a decision on a case called, as Matt mentioned, Ramos v. Louisiana. They heard the arguments on October 7th of 2019, and the, the issue here was whether or not non-unanimous jury convictions or laws that allow them, so say a, a 10 to 2 jury conviction as opposed to a 12-0 jury conviction, is that uh, a violation of the Sixth Amendment right to trial by jury? Uh, so the way the that this case specific case came before the court was on appeal from the Fourth Circuit. Uh, a, a young man named Evangelisto Ramos was convicted of the serious crime in Louisiana, one of two states along with Oregon that permitted non-unanimous jury convictions. Louisiana has since gotten rid of that, uh, but he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. And it was on a 10-2 vote of the jury. This was in 2016. Um, mm -hmm. So the court considered this question, uh, and they held in a 6-3 to three decision that the Sixth Amendment does require a unanimous jury conviction in both federal and state criminal proceedings. So what they did was they they again rejected the the theory of dual track incorporation, meaning that the Bill of Rights applied differently to the states than to the federal government. Uh, so on its face, what you have here is a somewhat simple issue. I mean, you'd see it, you'd walk, you'd, you'd read the, you'd read this, you know, two sentence synopsis of the case. You'd, you'd ask, you know, why is this interesting? I was reading a piece by Linda Greenhouse who covers the court, for the New York Times, and she said, that sounds almost too straightforward to be very interesting. So here's where it gets interesting. The majority, like I said, was a six, six justice majority. You had Justice Gorsuch writing the opinion, and he was joined by Justice Ginsburg, Justice Breyer, Sotomayor, and Justice Kavanaugh. Now, Sotomayor and Kavanaugh wrote concurring opinions themselves, but that is, that is a very odd split. Certainly, um, yeah that you would, you know, not, not usually see. Um, 
and that is going to be primarily due to the the issues that they're deciding that didn't appear obviously in the case but that once you start reading the decision are just ever present and that's going to be uh stare decisis so the role of precedent judicial precedent um mm -hmm. and when how and why if ever judicial precedent should be overturned so the mm -hmm. precedent in this case uh it was a, a decision called apodaca v oregon uh, if you remember, Oregon's one of those two states that does allow non-unanimous jury convictions. And that is a, a decision from 1972 um, where the court held that non-unanimous jury convictions were constitutional. They did not violate the Sixth Amendment. Uh, this decision, it was a very splintered decision. So you had this, this being the 1972 Apodaca case. You had a four justice plurality that said non-unanimous jury convictions uh, are constitutional. Unanimity does not serve an important function in society. And then you had four justices in dissent uh, that argued, as was held now in the Ramos case, that the Sixth Amendment does require a unanimous conviction. So the remaining justice, Justice Lewis Powell, uh, he agreed with the plurality that said the Sixth Amendment does not require unanimity, except he disagreed in the reasoning. Rather than saying that unanimity did not serve an important function, he said that it, the Sixth Amendment did not require unanimity because of the dual track theory of incorporation. So he believed that the Bill of Rights should be applied differently to the states than it applies to the federal government. So what you'll see in this Ramos decision is a long and eloquent uh, discussion about whether or not a single justice writing for the court is a legitimate precedent. And so Ginsburg and Breyer and Sotomayor and Kavanaugh in the majority held in favor of the precedent. So they wanted the precedent to be upheld uh, and a lot of scholars think that this case is really a discussion about Roe v. Wade and abortion cases and whether or not the court should overturn what will be the next huge constitutional issue to come before the court. So there's two, two important parts of this case that, that I thought was really interesting, that I saw a, a lot of uh, journalists and legal scholars thought was interesting. The first was Kavanaugh wrote a concurrence where effectively it was a guide to how you could convince him to overturn precedent among what he said was uh, crucial in overturning precedent was that it had to be egregiously wrong. It mm -hmm. had the reliance interested interests in the in upholding the precedent had to be uh, not important. And he pointed to the the Janus case that the court recently decided, <laughs> yeah. uh, which overturned 40 years of uh, First Amendment and public sector union precedent from a case called Abood. And then the second mm -hmm. important part of this case is that Kagan joined Alito and Chief Justice Roberts in dissenting. So she thought that, you know, even though this Apodaca case may have been wrongly decided, um, and it, it may not be the greatest decision, 
she she held that it, it is judicial precedent and they need to uphold judicial precedent for reliance interests, for uh, judicial stability. Um, and so I, I, I think what she's saying here is, you know, Justice Alito, Chief Justice Roberts, I'm going to come along with you guys on this ride here and upholding precedent. And when we get to uh, a crucial uh, attack on Roe v. Wade and abortion rights, I want you to come along with me too. I want you to stand with me and say, you know what, this is precedent because Roe has been decided about 50 years now. And the court actually did hear an important abortion case uh, this term. It's going to be the first one since Justice Kennedy retired in 2018. And this case deals with the Louisiana law um, that says uh, abortion providers have to have admitting privileges at nearby hospitals. So that would cut the number of abortion providers in Louisiana, which is already very small. Two to one. (laughs) Yeah, even even smaller, minuscule amount. Um, And in 2016, the court heard a case that was very similar to this, a nearly identical law, and they struck it down. And the only difference now is that Justice Kavanaugh is on the court instead of Justice Kennedy. So a lot of people thought that this decision of precedent in Ramos is... uh, sort of a discussion above our heads about what they're going to do with precedent from Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey and uh, what we could see be a, a very consequential decision this summer in regards to Louisiana's uh, admitting privileges law. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, do you want to go, Vincenzo, or I can go if you want. No, no, no. Go ahead. Yeah. So you know, I, I, you talk a lot about um, stare decisis, Jonathan, and obviously that's the most important part of this case. I'm not sure how I feel about the, the merits of, um, of the case when it comes to the unanimous uh, criminal verdicts. But one thing I can tell you, and I think this might be controversial, is that I think stare decisis is, um, is really BS, honestly. Um, you know, this is, and, again, confirmation yeah. that Matthew Chekhov has an affinity for yes. Justice Thomas. <laughs> yes, exactly. Confirmation. But I mean, I can go like, if the Supreme Court decided something that was wrong, it does not matter if they decided it the first day that John Jay, who was, our, he was our first Chief Justice, right? It doesn't matter yes. if it was John Day's, John Jay's first day on the court ruling on whatever, right? If that was wrong, it does not matter if it was the first day of the Supreme Court's existence, I think the Supreme Court should overturn that law. Yes, I understand how messy that can get. There should be, that should be considered when overturning president. But I think that leaving president in place just because it has been part of this country is just absolute nonsense. So, you know, I think uh, Jonathan talked about Justice Gorsuch and his concurrence and talking about what it would take for him to overturn president. And I, I have not read this concurrence, but based on Jonathan's description of what Justice Gorsuch said about that, I think that his, he makes a pretty decent point. Obviously, I, uh, I do agree that Roe v. Wade was decided correctly. I do not think that just because it's president, that should be the reason why the justices decide to overturn it. I think that a president should ultimately, you know, be, you know, irrelevant. So, I, you know, I, I could think of multiple cases just in the past 10, 20 years that I think that if the Supreme Court were to hurl to 
the you know the other direction in the next five, 10, 15 years that they should really consider just completely overturning. I understand how political that looks, but you know at the end of the day, if the Supreme Court made the wrong decision, I think they should overturn it regardless of precedent. So curious what you two. Well, Matt, that. actually specifically on that, I, I yeah. think it actually has an interesting thing specifically with regard to the abortion debate in the courts. Yeah. yeah because there's a lot of, I'll, I'll put these in air quotes, but liberal legal commentators that have yeah. pointed specifically with regard to a lot of the textual challenges, I'll call them, to the constitutionality of abortion that yeah. basically to walk away from it, you know, to walk away from Casey, the Planned Parenthood, which is the, I think the, probably the biggest case since yeah, Roe v. Since Wade. Roe v. Wade. Um, in 1994 or something like that? Yeah. yeah. I, 19, yeah it might have been later than that. I think it was, I think it was 94, but um, yeah. anyway, but basically that overturning that type, overturning the constitutionality and flipping it on its head is really the reason why it's justified so much is at this point because of uh, legal precedent. I mean, I, I remember actually, I think J Justice Ginsburg has even talked about this too, about how, you know, the reasoning in Roe v. Wade, you know, is actually subject to a, a considerable degree of criticism from both ends of the um, ideological aisle as it pertains to judicial interpretation, including Justice Ginsburg, but ultimately that because it is, you know, a critical part of the corpus juris at this point, and because precedent has been built upon it to sort of pull the, you know, paper out from under the card, so to speak, and everything collapses would really, really undermine the legitimacy of, uh, of the rule of law, I guess, up until this point. So I guess sort of what I'm getting at is, do you think that, you know, given, let's use abortion as an example, because so much of that has now been predicated on sustaining precedent vis-a-vis -vis stare decisis, that if we were to kind of adopt your approach of saying, you know, listen, this is kind of BS, um, that that really imperils abortion rights. Um, I, I, I understand what you're saying, but I know there are some other legal scholars that say that there are ways to kind of come to the, I mean, we've talked about yeah. this in all of our classes. Like there's other, there's, communities and stuff yeah, like that, there's, yeah. A, there's a million ways that, I mean, who is it? Is it Richard Posner, uh, legal pragmatism? Like Richard Posner, just, Jack Balkan. Yeah. There's a lot, yeah. a lot of the discussion I think has to do with the, instead of incorporating it through, I believe it's the, is it incorporated through the due process clause? Or the I, I don't, but, I, I, have no, I don't know. But my point that I was trying to make is that at the end of the day, the justices could find a way to make mm -hmm. Roe v. Wade happen, get to the same result without relying on precedent. I think it, it, in very reasonable ways. So I do, under, I do understand the point. And especially because, you know, I mean, the kind of, you know, mayhem that would result from uh, Roe v. Wade being overturned. Although if Roe v. Wade was, were overturned, then I guess it would just be a state-by-state state kind of thing. So I'm not sure, mm -hmm. like, Louisiana would would go from, like, one set. Like, these conservative states have, have, like, really chiseled away at abortion rights so much in the past, like, 30, especially in the last 20 years, but really even, like, in the last 30, 40 years, to the point where I'm not even sure, I mean, it would have a massive effect, but you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I think it could realistically happen where Roe v. Wade right. is overturned, but then you have, what, like, three-fifths of the state still having abortion clinics and stuff like that, so, yeah. Although it would be a massive effect for the people living in those states, right. like, you no, know, sure. if you have to, like, you already have to drive hours and hours to an abortion mm -hmm. clinic in some of these uh, more red states, so it might even get 
more burdensome, which I just think is really terrible. But you know, back to back to President and what Jonathan was kind of talking about. I, I just ultimately think that, you know, I, I, like I said, I, I can come up with a bunch of cases. I'm thinking Rucho v. Common Cause, which just is the mm-hmm. terrible gerrymandering case from last term. I'm thinking of Citizens United. I'm thinking of Shelby v. Holder. Ouch, that kills me. Shelby v. Holder. Roberts just destroying the Voting Rights Act. But Dred Scott and Korematsu for a long time were passed <laughs> until they were overturned. So yes, I, I exactly. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, like, just, like, what if the Supreme Court and Brown v. Board was, like, you know, what, like, it's been president uh, separate but equal for what yeah. it was, like, 60 years at that point when they made that decision so that we're not, we're not allowed to, you know, overturn that. So I just, I just don't think that president should be the reason why anybody does anything i mean it's kind of mocked like the idea of uh, like we're doing this because of tradition is really mocked in contemporary culture except that the supreme court embraces that idea that we're doing this because of tradition so that's that's my opinion i'm wondering what do you think about that jonathan yeah well i i see where you're coming from i do want to push back a little bit from Uh the other side because i do i i do think that precedent is important uh at a at a certain level because what we expect from our courts at every level, especially the Supreme Court, which is going to be setting, you know, the foundation, the rules of the road for the circuit courts, the yeah. district courts at the state and local level as well, we expect consistency. Yeah. And if sure. the law is going to be changing uh-huh. every 20, 30 years at the whim of two or three presidents who get to throw one, two, three members on the court. Yeah. And then, and then we have, you know, one law that's one way 20 years ago, but it switches 20 years after that. Mm-hmm. I think for me, that throws society for a loop more than, you know, just totally holding, holding to every single precedent. Yeah. I think that there is, there absolutely is a time and a place. To well, and I think building off of yeah. I think building off of that too, one of the key things with regard to precedent is this, and I'm sure you'd agree with this too, Matt, is that there's, maybe it's sometimes harder to define this on the margins, but like there is a difference between so-called good precedent versus bad precedent, right? Uh Where something is very clearly erroneous, maybe even in our contemporary consciousness that like we could sort of say like, okay, this, you know, is, was clearly erroneous for any number of reasons versus something that's like, okay, well, this is something that is admittedly ambiguous, whether it's a statute or uh, constitutional provision, or yeah. duty, whatever. And then say that by virtue of that ambiguity, we have a reason sort of explanation that has been treated as the meaning over X amount of time. Uh-huh. And that that tradition, given something that may not be abundantly clear, is something that we should at least pay some deference to. But I do think you raise a, a very valid point that like precedent should not be the bedrock upon which you build your argument uh, i think it's very flimsy yeah i don't mean to cut this discussion off but i do want to get to the rest of the stuff that we have today yeah you know, we have a lot of stuff for this last episode so we why do. don't we actually move into something that i'm sure is not controversial at all will not take up any time whatsoever yeah. is the uh the recent updates to um michael flynn's legal troubles that we actually covered on the last episode but have had some interesting developments since then so um matt do you want to just sort of give us a, a, a like a brief update or yeah Sure. So uh, the last time we spoke about Michael Flynn, it was after the uh, the DOJ kind of, or was it the court? I think it was filed on the public docket. There were basically these documents mm-hmm. that came out that uh, it was the biggest document was were these notes that kind of 
from an FBI agent kind of wondering like, oh, what, what, should, what should we do with this Michael Flynn interview? Should we try to get him to lie so we can prosecute? Should we try to see if he'll tell the truth or something like that? And it, this was kind of construed as the FBI entrapping him. And we kind of talked about how that was just not at all true. And that's how the FBI works, right? So maybe mm-hmm. in the colloquial sense, it seems like entrapment, but everybody has to understand the FBI does this every single day. So you have the right wing getting really angry about um, about how the FBI was functioning in this one case, but the FBI does this all the time, and you don't see the uh, you don't see them caring about this when it happens to, you know, just you know Joe the plumber Joe or Schmell, whatever. Yeah. yeah, I know we were going the same way. That's funny. Okay, but that was the last time we checked in. Nothing really happened. We were going to see how Judge Sullivan was going to rule. But then the craziest thing happened, Vincenzo and Jonathan, and you guys must have seen this. What happened was the DOJ actually filed a motion to dismiss or drop his charges, or basically trying to stop the prosecution of Michael Flynn. And this is really unprecedented because you'll remember mm-hmm. that Michael Flynn actually pleaded guilty and was in like a was actually in a cooperation agreement with the government where they where he provided assistance. So, I mean, the idea that the DOJ would actually decide to drop the charges against a defendant who actually pleaded guilty to those charges is just really bonkers. And, you know, it, it, there's really, really hard. It's really hard to find a good faith argument why the Justice Department would do yeah. this beyond just them wanting to help out Michael Flynn and make him kind of like a, a pariah that uh, Trump is even talking about kind of bringing him back into the 2020 campaign is just like the symbol of leftist, um, you know, overzealous prosecution. Even though it was Flynn his was own a Democrat, justice. ironically enough. Like, yeah, yeah, no, it's funny. Flynn was a Democrat. Robert Mueller was a Republican. It, Rod Rosenstein, who oversaw the Mueller investigation, was a Republican. Jim Comey was a Republican. Uh, yeah. Sessions, who recused himself, was a Republican. You have these are all Republicans, although it, the, a lot of the investigative team were Democrats, to be fair. But you know, at the end of the day, that's what happened. The DOJ tried to drop these charges. They were their argument was that you know basically. Well, they said a lot of different things, but it came down to number one: they're not, they couldn't, they weren't sure beyond a, a reasonable doubt that uh, they could prove that Flynn was lying, which is really nonsense, especially because he admitted to lying twice. Like he, he actually said in court in front of Judge Sullivan and one other judge that he lied to the FBI. So uh, I think they could prove that. And that, by the way, that is admissible evidence according to some legal scholars. So the idea they couldn't prove it beyond a reasonable doubt is uh, a little bit nonsense. But also you had these other arguments about materiality, whether, you know, it was, whether the, uh, whether the investigation, I mean, whether the interview that Flynn lied during was even uh, well predicated because the investigation itself wasn't predicated. But, you know, once again, legal scholars completely dismissed that nonsense. But then, you know, so that, 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 that happened. So Judge Sullivan was kind of you know, mulling that over for a couple of days and then a bombshell came out and this is really, really unprecedented. It turns out Judge Sullivan wants to accept amicus briefs to decide if Flynn um, committed perjury by lying when he said that um, he lied to the FBI, basically. So yeah. th- this is really bizarre because remember, Judge Sullivan is a district court judge and he's asking for amicus briefs. 
which just never happens, right? Because, you know, you yeah. only have the really Supreme Court asking for amicus briefs. And uh, the last kind of development in this case was that Judge Sullivan actually appointed an amicus, appointed, um, you know, a friend of the court. His name's retired. He's a retired judge, John Gleason, from, I believe, the Eastern District. Eastern of District of New York. Yeah, he was yeah. a former uh, prosecutor for EDNY as well. I believe he prosecuted John Gotti, if I'm yeah, uh, He did. He did. Yeah. So anyway. Blur, yeah. Yeah, so anyway, he is going to be arguing in favor, I believe in favor, well, I guess technically he probably will be arguing in favor, but he, but basically Judge Sullivan just asked him to kind of weigh in on this issue. So yeah, that's basically a quick summary of what's going to be going on with Mike Flynn. Um, so I guess I'll just open it up um, with the question, do you think that this was corrupt by Bill Barr's DOJ? You want to take that first, Jonathan? Uh, yeah, I'll take it. So I think that I, first of all, I just want to say this whole ordeal has yeah. just been a whirlwind. I yes. mean, from start to like wherever we are now, this is <laughs> crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that, um, I, I think that Judge Sullivan's decision to appoint uh, retired Judge Gleason, who was also a federal prosecutor, um, as an, as an Amici, as a friend of the court was a very interesting decision. I'm, I've read and I've seen that it's, it's unprecedented, but I've also seen that in response to, I guess, the DOJ and Bill Barr's decision, which was also unprecedented. Yeah. It's a nice match. Yeah. So, um, I think that it will be interesting to see what judge, Cle uh, retired judge Gleason, uh, has to say about whether or not Flynn perjured himself and should be held in contempt of court for withdrawing his pleas, which he already, you know, admitted he lied. Um, and I think it is important that this is not just a rubber stamp issue where the where Bard comes down from the top and says, you know, we're we're not prosecuting this case anymore. I think it's very important that we hear both sides of this. Why is the DOJ think? that Flynn should no longer be prosecuted because it definitely goes a little bit deeper than the materiality of the uh, admission that Flynn gave. Uh, and I think Judge Gleason will be uh, the right person to do that. It sounds like he, has, he was a, uh, a great prosecutor, so hopefully he can dig deep into this one and a real, reveal a little bit of information so we get both sides. Yeah, I think, Matt, with regard to your question in the beginning of the is this a corrupt use of power, um, I remember sort of getting into the weeds on this was when we had Professor Margulies on the show, um, I think it was on episode three. Um, I, I honestly, I think as just taking legal definitions out of it, yes, I think it's certainly a political and corrupt action. Um, now, the degree to which they can be held accountable, that I don't know. Um, I think that it's a clear miscarriage of justice, really, however you spin it. That said, I, I want to zero in on this issue, too, of the appointment of, so this, I actually don't know like what the formal title of it is, but basically seeping the amicus briefs, because I think in general, that's a good practice that has helped a lot of litigation, especially on both sides of, uh, you know, major cases in front of the Supreme Court, I'm sure definitely at the appellate courts. Uh, but as you correctly pointed out, this is more rare um, in a district court setting. And I think that this is, again, one of those difficult situations where you have an action that is just so difficult to, I mean, it's really, I don't think one should really defend what the Justice Department is trying to do here, should defend Michael Flynn, 
and you know the president's actions. I but at the same time, I do understand. I, I am somewhat hesitant. Let me frame it that way about sort of you know this does this you know sort of use of appointing you know a third party to basically come in and you know give their opinion on something um specifically in favor of well presumably what will be in favor of you know deciding that you know Flynn probably committed perjury and thus a crime is that almost kind of you know appointing almost like a third prosecutor or a third party sort of to the case is like well the judge is let's give him the benefit of the doubt. And I, I, I want to hear about, you know, that, you know, he's may wants to make an informed, correct decision. Okay. But yeah. at the same time, what is that to stop again? We can flip it. A Trump judge that wants to, you know, give more context to or justify, you know, his or her decision by again, appointing or seeking advice and counsel from effectively a third party. And I think it's it's one of those things where I don't necessarily know if you can have it both ways because then it's like you know that every amicus brief at that point you know in any setting is almost like kind of like appointing more parties to the case. But I think in a unique aspect of a criminal trial, right, that it becomes particularly precarious, so to speak, when you kind of, in a way, are even though it's still kind of just seeking judgment that would theoretically inform a right decision, you are kind of appointing you know. A third prosecutor, kind of, or, or rather, a second prosecutor, which I think is a potentially dicey thing if you put it in any other number of contexts. So, for example, um, if a process, and, and, and granted, this there's complexities to this scenario that I'm about to propose, but you know, say a defendant is, you know, m obviously wants to be found not guilty, the prosecution wants to drop charges, and the judge says, hmm, you know what, I think that you know, I'm, I'm not sure I agree with. The prosecutors here that want to be more lenient, um, let's say it's a justified scenario that they want to be lenient, I want to appoint a hard on crime, you know, sort of third party to come in and argue the other side. That I think could be weaponized in a pretty problematic way. Um, I don't think it necessarily applies to this specific scenario here, but I could see it again being used perniciously. So I was wondering what you guys thought about that. Yeah, so I think that Jonathan summed it up pretty well at the beginning when he said that Judge Sullivan's decision to appoint an amicus in this case was kind of um, like a direct response to the really bizarre yes. DOJ action. So, you know, yeah. I, I think you're right in that it's kind of a little bit concerning and you obviously saw people on the right make the point that you made, but this is such a bizarre case that I think it was pretty entirely appropriate, mm -hmm. especially because that nobody in good faith can can say that there are not some very very significant questions that need to be explored and answered when it comes to this prosecution when it comes Certainly. to the doj and the political i can't say that word in this podcast yes that's, i think that's the fourth attempt and fourth fail at this <laughs> word but um you know no, nobody can say there are no questions so i think it was an apt response to what the Justice Department was doing. I'm because, you know, I think that a lot of people on the right just wanted him to say, okay, well, the DOJ says they're done with this. So the judge is supposed to just say, okay, let's just go with the DOJ and what they're saying. But mm -hmm. remember, the judiciary is an independent branch and mm -hmm. the executive branch needs to bring them to this independent branch to, in order to make, to find them guilty and send them to prison or get the cooperation deal or whatever. So, you know, the idea that the DOJ, uh, that the judiciary should just roll over for the justice department and not put up any fight against what is clearly something that needs to be explored a lot more 
is really kind of nonsense to me. But I do take your point that they, it, this needs to be something that gets used extremely, mm -hmm. extremely carefully and only in the rarest of cases. And I think it was the appropriate decision and a much better decision than I think a lot of other judges would have made where they just said, okay, it's not my responsibility to kind of, you know, really understand what's going on here. So I think Sullivan made the right decision when it came to this. So mm -hmm. I wanted I wanted to pose a question to you guys about uh -huh. this because so this is now the second time uh, in a short time span where we've seen the attorney general uh -huh. uh, assert himself over uh, or in, a, in opposition to the wishes of the career prosecutors at the DOJ who were specifically working this case. So yeah. uh, I believe Attorney General Barr himself signed the uh, the motion to dismiss the charges in this case. The four prosecutors who were working the Flynn case did not sign that. And then uh, I, believe, I think it was a couple months ago where uh, Barr against the sentencing guidelines and the proposed uh, sentencing recommendations of the career prosecutors on the Roger Stone case, mm -hmm. he recommended a more lenient sentence. Um, so what, what do you guys, and I actually, I think I saw recently, maybe, I think it was 2000 or however many number of uh, former and current career DOJ officials. Yeah, um, I saw the letter. Expressed yeah. their opposition to these moves by Attorney General Barr. So I know, Matt, you, you asked the question about corruption or whatever it may be, but I wanted to, to know your guys' thoughts on how Bill Barr is asserting himself. Yeah, extremely that, corruptly I'm, is my answer. Yeah, yeah. So I, and, yeah, and definitely, definitely in spirit. I agree with Matt. I, I think that. Ooh, in I'm spirit. Little, I think I'm more well. I and we actually discussed this exact issue, Jonathan, on episode three when we had Professor Margulies on to talk about the Roger Stone mm -hmm. case. And mm -hmm. I think that it comes down to an issue of well, yes, like something you can take something is clearly corrupt in its intent, et cetera or if you want to characterize it that way. But at the end of the day, how do you square it with, well, the attorney general and by extension, the president, just as much so as any other president has the right to, you know, sort of say like, this is outrageous. This is a, you know, miscarriage of justice or is being overzealous. Or I think the sentencing guidelines are wrong. Um, obviously it doesn't frequently happen that the president's crony or good friend is the one that's up for trial. Um, but, really is in terms of the formal mechanisms to hold the president accountable or the justice department accountable. I'm not too sure because I mean, especially with regard to the pardoning power, um, you know, the president can pardon really whoever he wants. And I know Matt um, and the professor had a disagreement with regard to even that exercise of power is not unlimited and that if you use it corruptly, that that, you know, could be an impeachable offense. Um, the, what that looks like though, and the paper trail and the argument that has to be made, I'm honestly not sure. So I, I, I will, for purposes of answering the question, I'll agree with you, Matt. Um, but I do think that it's not clear cut um, in that there's other complexities to it. With uh -huh. that, um, since we're on this last episode, Matt and I are trying to get as much as we can say. And uh, why don't we move to uh, one of the newer things um, that's on the table, uh, especially in theme with the ongoing coronavirus pandemic. Um, this is interesting uh, situation that we have with uh, Senator Richard Burr, um, who is a he's a Republican Poor senator from which senator. state, Matt? From, he's not from, from Georgia, North Carolina. Was, uh, North Carolina. 
and potential um, violation of the Stock Act in all of another acronym similar to the States Act, the First Step Act, and Matt's favorite law, the Patriot Act. Ah, um, yes. But uh, <laughs> we can dive quickly into this. Matt, do you want to uh, give us a brief yeah. sort of rundown of that and then we can get into some of the key excerpts here that I thought were particularly interesting before yeah, we go so with the... Our last very fun today. interesting topic but uh so basically what you have to know about this is uh, probably a lot of people saw this a couple weeks ago maybe it was late march i don't remember exactly when it was there was a report from uh pro uh which is a really great investigatory uh reporting news site that that basically said that richard burr sold a significant amount of stock on I believe it might have been the day of a really important coronavirus briefing. And remember, Richard Burr is the chair of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, which is, you know, it's really the, it's a really important committee, maybe the most important committee when it comes to national security in the Senate. Well, definitely it's, it's the, yeah, it's probably, it's definitely the most important committee when it comes to national security in the Senate. And he received a briefing on coronavirus that day. I believe it was that day. And he sold a massive amount of stock because he yeah. must've been told inside the committee hearing. And this is, by the way, this is a classified hearing. He must have been told inside this classified hearing that this was going to get really, really, really bad. So I, I think the, the hearing was maybe February or January. It was yeah. Sometime. So he had sold, according to the reporting that Matt was citing, and then also the LA Times had done a, a report on it that it was uh, there was thirty three different transactions on February thirteenth. Yeah. Uh, which was right around the time that there were early committee briefings uh, on the potential impact of the coronavirus. And that amount is projected to have been anywhere between 630000 to about uh, almost $2 million worth yeah. of So two really there. important pieces of context when it comes to that. Number one, that's a significant amount of Burr's portfolio. Mm -hmm. Like he's not a billionaire. He's, you know, a wealthy guy, but he's, you know, doesn't have a very high net worth so you have to remember how much money that is when it comes when it, when it comes to the the rest of his portfolio but also a really important second piece of context this is before nobody in the u.s government was taking besides maybe the intelligence community was taking it seriously right mm -hmm. so um you know nobody in the public was it might have been in the news occasionally but this was still one it was a really big problem in wuhan um, I'm not sure a single case was confirmed in the U.S. There definitely were no deaths in the U.S., I don't think. I mean, so, it, like, everybody remembers the coronavirus really changing their life come, like, the second, third-ish week of March. That's when it really became a big deal in the U.S. with the lockdown orders, especially on the East Coast and everything. But in, in early February, or a month before the lockdowns, it wasn't really that big a deal. So, so Richard Burr got this briefing, and he sold a ton of stock. And there was a, there was another investigation, uh, kind of done with the public records that showed that I don't think he's ever sold that much stock in one day ever. I don't no. think. Yeah. So wow. I mean that's really suspicious when it comes to that. Um, and you know what happened was when this eventually came out, it was really suspicious. I mean, hmm. like like I said, he's never sold this much money. Uh, this much stock and it was right on the day that he was getting a coronavirus briefing and he was also simultaneously telling the public that this was not really that big a deal mm -hmm. so uh what happened was investigate he's well first of all he committed himself to being investigated by senate ethics and we now know that the fbi launched an investigation and we know that the fda launched an investigation because just a couple days ago 
the FBI served a warrant to get his yep. cell phone. They actually came to his, I believe they came to his house and just, you know, yeah. kind of asked for his cell phone. Yeah, and I think that one thing that's really important to highlight about that before we get into the discussion of this is that when uh, a search warrant or specifically connected to a, obviously a criminal investigation is served upon such a high-ranking member of the government, um, a senator, a congressman, um, member, maybe a high-ranking member of the executive branch, judge, requires really approval from the highest ranks yes. and offices in the Justice Department. So, I mean, this is something that, I mean, at least for now, we're, it's, it, it seems to be a positive sign that they're taking it seriously. Um, because it's uh, definitely portends some pretty, pretty, you know, significant corruption, or at least, you know, through the auspices of like insider trading and stuff like that. Yeah. So um, anyway, like Vincenzo said, you know, the, the, this is really cause for believing that Burr is in some serious jeopardy, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, funny enough, another, another congressman just, was it last year, Chris Collins, a New York Republican, uh, was uh, indicted, and I believe he pleaded. He pleaded guilty. He just he didn't want to go to trial, so he got a pretty sweet deal, I think. So you know, the con they're starting to take this seriously, especially when it came to coronavirus. I mean, he was simultaneously selling his portfolio while telling the public things are things are going pretty well. So it doesn't yep. really look good for him. And you know, what he's it's funny enough. This actually was not illegal up until I believe 2011. So insider trading used to actually be like perfectly legal for congressmen, but there is this act called the Stock Act that Vincenzo alluded to at the very beginning of the segment, and I, I don't remember exactly what the uh, what the acronym. It might be something like Stop Trading. I don't remember, but the point is, what this does it prohibits Congress and other congressional staff, as well as the president, vice president, specific members of the executive branch, from trading on material non-public information they may discover as part of their job. So this is textbook insider trading i mean richard burr said that he like was relying on cnbc or something like that but i mean it just really doesn't hold water when he's in a classified briefing with the the country's foremost intelligence and then he decided coincidentally the same day just to you know dump his entire portfolio and uh this i didn't mention this yet but it's also interesting to know it and i i i have to get this right his brother-in-law or his brother i, I it also traded a significant amount of stock the same day yes. as Burr, right? What's his, do you know his name? I remember hearing that about yeah. it. I don't remember the name, but I also know that in addition to that, there was another senator who was a, a recent appointee. Yeah, yeah so you're Kelly Loeffler, but she yep. she has, Kelly Loeffler and Feinstein also had some questions, although they both had excuses. Like they say they mm. don't like, like, like um, uh, Burr didn't have excuse saying like, oh, he doesn't handle his portfolio. But I believe that Feinstein and Loeffler, Loeffler, by the way, is like basically a billionaire almost or hundreds of millions of dollars. So, you know, the, the amount of money that she sold was much less. Yep. And I believe Feinstein, it was like her husband. I think her, her, share, her portfolio is controlled by somebody yep. that's not her. So I, they don't present the, the same. The same degree of, yeah. Yeah, not at all. So that's a completely different situation. Um, but yeah, I mean, this is just really alarming and I have it right here. Burr's brother-in-law sold thousands in stocks the same day as Burr. Mm -hmm. So his brother-in-law is also a federal government employee. He sold between 97000 and $280,000. Um, but he, oh, Burr denies he coordinated his trading with his brother that day. Although it's just, I mean, 
it's really hard in good faith to say that this was not insider trading. And obviously, Burr deserves the, um, you know, he's innocent to proven guilty. But I mean, by the preponderance of the evidence standard right now, when it comes to did he do this? I mean, it really does look like he did. Obviously, there are reasonable doubts, but, you know, he's not on trial yet. So um, as a little when last he does get to trial, it'll be beyond a reasonable yes. doubt. But I, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a little less footnote. He just uh, stepped down as um, Intel chairman, uh, I believe, mm-hmm. yesterday afternoon after submitting the final Russia investigation report to the DNI for declassification review. So uh, he stepped down as Intel chairman, but he, he pl- uh, at least he says he plans to stay on in the Senate uh, for the rest of his term. He's not running again after his term is up in mm-hmm. 2022. So, you know, that, that's that's kind of what's going on with Burr. I, I'm just kind of wondering, uh, Jonathan, do you think uh, Burr is in real trouble here? I mean, he's he's a U.S. senator. He's really high up. Do you think that the FBI is going to want to throw the book at him? Uh, yeah, I think he's in a little bit of trouble. I think anytime you have a sitting senator, sitting United States senator served with a search warrant yeah. uh, for information as personal as their cell phone, yeah. I think, uh, you know, there's there's something coming down the pipeline. Um, I know he has made the claim that he was trading on publicly held information. Um, I, what's the saying? Coincidence? I think not that yeah. he, had a, yeah. he has had he had been having uh, classified intelligence committee briefings on the plight of the coronavirus and he could probably uh, see what was coming. Um, I did want to point out a couple political implications that I thought were interesting. Yeah. Uh, the first is that, you know, I know that you mentioned he wasn't going to be running uh, for re-election in 2022 when his term was up, but hypothetically he's removed from office or um, however it turns out, if he, if he has to step down, yeah. um, that means that uh, Roy Cooper, who's the democratic governor in North Carolina would have the opportunity to appoint uh, a, a, another senator. And presumably uh, that would be another Democrat. And I know we've seen uh, in the past couple of weeks and months that Tom Tillis, the other senator in North Carolina, a also a Republican, yeah. and a lot, of retru- a lot of trouble in a, in a race against uh, Cal Cunningham, who's polling yeah. pretty well down there. So y- there are some, some pretty interesting political implications here. Uh, and yeah. I did, you know, this just, I don't want to wade into the discussing Trump's response to the coronavirus, but to me, it is just absolutely ridiculous that you have a senator here, maybe three, if you're talking about Kelly Loeffler and Dianne Feinstein, although Dianne Feinstein wouldn't have this type of access to the president. If you have Kelly Loeffler and Richard Burr taking these meetings and so scared that they're going to go off and sell sizable amounts of their personal fortunes, how can you not, if you're not gonna do it publicly, how can you not at least privately turn to the President of the United States and say, you know what, we might be in some trouble, you should probably get on this. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Yeah, you have any I last thoughts on that, Vincenzo? No, I, I, I agree with Jonathan. I think that it's telling that it speaks to a lot of the dysfunctional nature of this current incarnation of federal politics, specifically on the Republican side of the aisle. Um, I think that the political implications are really, really uh, significant. And it makes sense why 
he doesn't want to step down and is probably going to fight this tooth and nail, probably even potentially hoping for, you know, an eventual pardon or even something akin to what's going on with Michael Flynn right yeah. now. I'm sure so, the Trump Justice Department at a certain point, if it comes down to preserving number of votes, um, you know, will do everything in their power to, um, you know, prevent that from occurring. But yeah, so, I, I think that it's, it's interesting. Before we go on to the last segment, I will just say when it comes to that, I mean, there's a lot of people on the more on the far right than the moderate right who actually yeah. love to see this because they did not like Richard Burr. And the reason they didn't like Richard Burr is that he was actually a lot more reasonable and moderate as compared to yep. his, his absolute flunky on the house side, Devin Nunes, who is, yeah. I, I mean, he's an abomination of a congressman. I'm not sure we've talked about him much on the show, maybe a little bit, I don't remember, but I mean, Devin Nunes is a Trump loyalist through and through and Richard Burr, you know, he was actually a pretty decent chairman. I mean, there were some things we disagreed on, but um, him and uh, Mark Warner from Virginia actually got along pretty well when it came to the Russia investigation, and they conducted a relatively nonpartisan investigation into Russian interference in the election. So um, Trump obviously didn't. Oh, and also, you know, Richard Burr sanctioned the subpoenaing of Donald Trump mm -hmm. Jr., which I mean, really got on Trump's nerves. So there's actually some people that think that the reason that the FBI is being so aggressive is actually because they don't like Burr. So I don't think that we're going to be seeing a pardon yeah. from Trump about this, uh, about Richard Burr anytime soon. But this is a big pickup opportunity sure. for Democrats, obviously. But anyway, with that, uh, Vincenzo, I'm wondering if you can yeah. move us on to our very last segment here. Yeah. So really, before uh, we sign off uh, after this last segment, I just want to say uh, thank you to everyone who has supported our publication over these past several years, um, to the past editors, the current editors, uh, and Jonathan, obviously, your new team as they come in to take the reins. It's, it's been an absolute joy uh, to see it develop, uh, and I really hope it continues to fare well in the years to come. Um, but really, before Matt and I pass the torch, we must end on perhaps, perhaps, the most important topic uh, in our legal discourse today. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, bird law. Yeah. <laughs> you heard me right, bird law. So yes, for all of you uh, fellow Always Sunny uh, and Philadelphia fans out there um, that will get this joke. Well, it's actually not a joke. This is actually a serious story, but still the inspiration for this. Matt and I have been meaning to do at least one segment on bird law Indeed. in honor of America's leading bird expert, uh, bird law expert, Charlie Kelly, Esquire. <laughs> um, so anyway, in that spirit, we'll dive in. Full disclosure, this actually is a serious story. Uh, yeah. We needed to figure out a way to talk about bird law podcast so in short really when we're considering what bird law is usually it consists of a complex series of federal environmental statutes regulations and treaties um, that really are aimed at protecting um, species of birds from excessive hunting environmental degradation and trafficking uh, which is actually a very lucrative um, trade uh, specifically the wildlife trade the most notable piece of law that really kind of touches on this uh, that we'll briefly explore here today uh, involves the 1918 Migratory Bird Treaty Act, which uh, prohibits, uh, and I'm quoting, uh, uh, prohibits the take, including killing, uh, capturing, selling, trading, and transport of protected migratory bird species uh, without prior authorization from the Department of Interior, uh, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, Fish and Wildlife Service being the principal enforcement of that treaty. So 
Um, the significant aspect of this is that under the Trump administration and earlier in January of this year, um, decided to roll back enforcement of the statute uh, and the, the treaty um, that would normally protect these species of birds and wildlife. Um, so according to reporting from the New York Times earlier this January, Trump officials, quote, moved to drop the threat of punishment to oil and gas companies, construction crews, and other organizations that, kills, that kill birds incidentally, arguing that businesses, businesses that accidentally kill birds ought to be able to operate without fear of prosecution. So essentially, this significantly reduces the risk of criminal sanctions um, for environmental degradation that would adversely affect migratory wildlife, um, such as many species of birds. And conservation groups um, also in the reporting have said that new proposed regulation from the United States Fish and Wildlife Service uh, would substantially weaken the Migratory Bird Treaty Act of 1918 and put millions of birds in danger. Uh, and the threat of fines and prosecutions um, has for decades helped prod industries to take steps to protect birds, like the fixing red lights onto communication statutes and so on, according to the reporting. So really, I think as we close out here and consider this in the broader nexus of especially cases that almost always have at least some connection to actions taken by the Trump administration. Um, just, there's a lot of stuff to talk about. I was wondering if you think that this move um, by the, the administration uh, will actually bring about a lot of the unwelcome environmental and wildlife consequences that some of these groups are talking about. Um, and kind of in, vain, in line with that, a lot of industry leaders have said in response to uh, protests over rolling back this law that you know, they would take active steps to try to preserve the um, protection of migratory wildlife and just the environment in general uh, and really taking that into consideration you know should we should we believe them yeah so i the trump administration is just what is this is one of the areas where they've actually been really effective when it comes to the regulation of the environment because so much could be done on the executive branch side so i mean as you know Congress has done very little in the past couple of years. I mean, he tried to repeal Obamacare. He failed. He got his tax cuts through mostly. Um, but beside, beyond that, he really hasn't done that much through Congress. So, you know, all he has is trying to do these things through, you know, executive orders and other types of regulatory rollbacks. So, um, yeah, I, I mean, they're the environmental groups are the experts on this. So I take them at their word that this is going to have negative effects. But um, I, I, I wonder what happens. I mean, it's kind of almost like what Jonathan was talking about when it came to president and the idea of like kind of just reversing what happened. So I'm wondering like if a Biden administration comes in, could they easily just kind of reverse back or kind of revert back yeah. to uh, you know, what happened before? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think I saw a New York Times article the other day that the Trump administration has done about 100 things through different executive decrees and yep. regulatory rollbacks that have harmed the environment. So I'm wondering how easy it will be to kind of reverse this when a mm -hmm. different administration comes back into the fold. Yeah, and I think just before you hop in, Jonathan, that's one of the key things at issue here is the degree to which there is executive discretion over these actions. So obviously Fish and Wildlife is under Department of Interior, which is one of the president's cabinet secretaries. Um, so he has principal, you know, authority over how those agencies carry out and enforce the law, so to speak. So the migratory for, um, the, the migratory treaty hasn't actually been overturned per se. It seems like what the approach is, well, basically we're just going to sort of walk back enforcement of it. I think, Matt, you might remember when we talked yeah. about the States Act that the Obama administration um, took a similar approach actually. The coal memo. Enough. Exactly. Yeah. Yes, with regard to enforcing 
mar marijuana <laughs> laws um, that basically they weren't overturning you know the Controlled Substances Act and other attending drug laws and saying, well, you know, we're not going to really enforce this and use the power that we had behind us. But with that said, uh, Jonathan, what is your kind of take on this? Yeah, well, I I think uh, Matt touched on this briefly. Um, one of the the goals of the Trump administration has been really a rollback of the administrative state, and that that has included very plainly. Uh, degrading the effectiveness and the influence of the EPA and the environmental lobby. Um, and I, I think I saw it was towards, towards the beginning of uh, the president's term, he rolled back an executive order from President Obama that made it uh, unlawful to kill animals while they were hibernating. Um, so that was, that was a little bit questionable to me, just like this is. Um, I think that, you know, it's, it's all, it's, it's real nice that these corporations are uh, committing to at least at some standard to uh, uh, uphold the, the uh, conservation of the environment to try to treat these, the migratory birds um, as they should. Um, but I, I mean, I think the question is, again, are we going to take these corporations at their word? They're, the I think it's the triad for uh, committing fraud is need, opportunity, and the ability to rationalize behavior. And when you're trying to increase your profit margins, are these corporations, these huge corporations, really going to let you know two to two thousand birds get in their way? So I think the in my mind the way to go uh, in this vein is is uh, regulation, and I think this is going to have an an unfortunate effect. And I, I think to answer the question of, you know, Matt's question of what happens in a, in a hypothetical Biden administration, I, I think what uh, the environmental lobby and what Democrats everywhere are hoping for is uh, a supermajority so they can take a step away from the executive action which President Obama uh, enacted in large part because he didn't have the Senate, uh, he didn't have the House at a point, I think. Uh, and yeah. they want a supermajority so they can enact congressional legislation, um, and that will be more more effective. Definitely. Well, I think needless to say, Charlie Kelly and the folks at Patty's Pub might finally have their first legitimate case to bring uh, to bring to court. So, with that, um, I think it's time for us to close out. We might actually have set the record uh, each week now. Uh, ending on this episode with the longest episode, but that's okay. Cause yeah, I think we have. it's always good to, to round out the final episode. Um, and I just want to say again and reiterate, thanks to everyone who has listened and read our publication. Um, huge congratulations again to Jonathan for his yep. hard work so far, but also for the challenges ahead, um, especially as we um, wrangle with the challenges of the coronavirus and also what that means for our uh, publication. Um, so before we, I guess, formally sign off to it, Matt, I wanted to give you an opportunity uh, if you had any last words before we, uh, yeah. we sign off. Yeah, so I'm just, uh, I'm just really happy about what we've been able to do this past semester. I mean, this podcast has been a really fun opportunity to kind of, you know, talk and debate with you, Vincenzo, over the past mm -hmm. couple months. And you know, I, I, I really have enjoyed kind of editing these pieces and reading what a lot of people are saying about a lot of different topics. So it's been a very valuable opportunity for me, and I'm really happy 
that we have Jonathan on board kind of we're passing the torch to him and, and I'm really excited to see what he does the publication going forward. Definitely. Yeah. And then if I Absolutely. could just cut in for a second, I, I, you know, if, if everyone or anyone has not done this yet, I wanted to thank you both profusely for all of the work that you've done uh, for the, for the undergraduate review. Um, it's been really uh, unbelievable you guys have really brought this publication back and i'm i'm honored to have the opportunity to take on after you guys so thank you thanks man absolutely yeah no we're more than happy to help and please know to our listeners and to also you jonathan as well that we are always uh happy to help going forward so with that um thank you again to our listeners uh thank you to cornellradio.com for their ongoing support for this podcast uh and for the last time my name is vincenzo guido my name is matthew chekov and now, Jonathan, you could do your outro. <laughs> <laughs> and Jonathan Harris. And this has been Lawn Society Talk. Take care, uh, and everyone stay safe. Bye.